Well, welcome everybody. Thanks for uh, spending part of your Easter with us and getting together and celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus. My name's Jeff. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to do that and say hi to you. And I, I love Easter. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for followers of Christ. It's actually a big deal for everybody on the planet. Uh, we would look at Easter here at Grace Church and we would say that event, uh, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, that event is what everything we believe hinges on. It's his resurrection that causes us to look and say, Jesus is God. Now, he's not just a prophet or a good man or a, a, a moral teacher, but he's actually divine. He's actually God. Uh, it's the resurrection that would cause us to look and say, that's why we believe the Bible and everything that Jesus teaches us about himself in the Bible. Because if he can raise again from the dead, he can certainly write the book and tell us the whole story of who he is. And it's off of that resurrection that the church is built. It's off of that resurrection that our faith is anchored. Everything flows back to that. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, uh, he said, if there is no resurrection, then he is, the, he is the biggest fool. We're all fools for being here and celebrating something that's mythical. It'd be dumb to do that. But if there is the resurrection, then we're dealing with God himself and what he says and what he wants and how he crafts our lives is something that we should not only just pay attention to, but yield to in all aspects of things. So big deal, fun to celebrate and grateful to be here together for that. When, when you think about the Easter story, if you're familiar with the story, maybe even if you're not, it really is a, a week-long process in the Bible, right? So Easter kind of starts a week before Jesus raises again from the dead. We call it Palm Sunday nowadays, but it starts with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. He went there to lay his life down. That's what he himself said. Jesus was not murdered. Uh, he was not caught in political entry. He offered his life. By his own authority, he laid it down. And then he said, by my own authority, I'll take it up again. So he came to Jerusalem to do that on Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because the, the ancient people would wave palm branches in celebration of somebody that they were excited to see. So they were doing that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He's at the height of his popularity, big rock star at that point comes in, and then over the course of a week, all of that gets flipped on its ear, right? So over the course of that week, he, he is uh, in the garden with his father. He's praying to him. Jesus's anxiety and stress about the crucifixion is so high that he actually has a medical condition where his, his capillaries burst and he sweated blood. And he was talking to his father. He's saying, basically, Dad, if there's another way to rescue these people that doesn't involve me being crucified, I would ask for that. But he said, if it, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him. The prophet Isaiah said that he was going to be beaten so badly that he wasn't going to be recognizable as a human being. So Jesus knew what was coming, and he, he headed down that path anyways. He was betrayed by Judas with a kiss. He was arrested, kind of went through a sham trial, and then he suffered for you and me. He was beaten. His beard was pulled out. The crown of thorns was shoved on his head. It caused all kinds of nerve damage to him. The Romans whipped him, lashed him so violently that his spine would have been exposed. It would have pulled the flesh off the bone. And then he's 
off to Golgotha. He carries the cross part of the way, and then he physically can't do it anymore, so Simon helps him carry it the rest of the way. When he's there, he's thrown on the cross. He's nailed to it, uh, spikes through his wrist and through his feet. He's hung in such a way that, that he can't breathe. He has to push against the spike on his feet in order to take a breath. And eventually, he bleeds out. Water pools in his lungs, and Jesus, Jesus suffocates, has a heart attack, and dies there on the cross. That was the medical process of what happened to him. In the middle of all that, we have the account of what he was doing and saying. Uh, he looked to the thief and said, hey, you are forgiven. You're going to join me today in paradise. He looked to the apostle John and said, take care of my mom for me when I'm gone. He, he cried out. He said, I thirst. And they gave him the vinegar on the pole. And then eventually he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never been separated from his father before. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gives up his spirit, the way the Bible says it, and he dies. And then we know from there what happens. Joseph Arimathea takes gas permission, gets it, takes his body down. He wrapped it up. That would be the ancient way of, of burying someone. And then he put it in a rich man's tomb, which fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy. Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb. The stone was rolled across the front of the tomb. Roman guards were posted at it. The disciples all go hide in the upper room. Uh, three days later, the ladies come to pack Jesus' body in spices. Again, it's just an ancient custom. They see the stone is rolled away. There's an angel there. They don't know where Jesus is. They go get the disciples. The disciples don't believe them, so they go check for themselves. They also see the empty grave, and Jesus has risen again from the dead. He shows up in the upper room, freaks everybody out, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and he's like, I, I am risen. The Bible teaches us that there's about 500 people that watch Jesus be crucified and died, and those same 500 people over that amount, the Bible says, also interacted with him after his resurrection. His own brother, his disciples, all of them died because they would not deny that they saw him die and saw him rise again. It really happened. Every historian on the planet believes that Jesus existed. There's eyewitnesses of his death and his resurrection. The Bible accounts for it. Roman history accounts for it. Jewish history accounts for it. Jesus did not metaphorically raise again from the dead, but he physically, literally rose again from the dead, and he did what only God can do. And that's why we would look at Jesus and celebrate Easter and say, we believe that that is God himself. And what he says to us and the salvation that he offers us and the direction that he gives us through his inspired word is what should govern our lives. Amazing, fascinating powerful, life-changing, history-altering account of the love and the power of, of God. In the middle of all that account, I want to show you this. In the middle of all the account, there's this one detail that just absolutely caught my attention and fascinated me, and this is what I want to talk with you about this weekend. In the middle of all that's going on, the Bible says this in Luke cha or Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. The Bible says this, at that moment, that's the moment Jesus died and gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The older versions say the veil in the temple, but the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I find that fascinating. 
of all the important things that happen, right, throughout the story of the crucifixion, all the prophecy that's being fulfilled through Jesus' coming to Jerusalem, to the way he was betrayed, to being sold for 30 pieces of silver, to being tried, to being beaten, to all everything, to the resurrection itself from a rich man's tomb, of all those important things and all of that detail and all the things that we write songs about and all the things that we sing, I just find it fascinating that in the middle of that, God talks about a curtain And that curtain that is torn, and the minute that Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. That curtain was hanging in the temple. The historians tell us that it was probably 60 feet tall and about four inches thick, and it hung there in the temple. And when Jesus died, it was torn in two. And that event is very critical for you and me Because that event of that curtain tearing from top to bottom represents a change in how humanity interacts with God that occurred because Jesus was willing to lay his life down, okay? So let let me talk about this. I'll get back to the curtain in a second. But to understand the curtain and understand all that happened, we have to go back and remind ourselves of why Jesus came to earth in the first place, okay? So this is what the Bible would teach us, what God was thinking and why Jesus was willing to be a part of it. God would look at us and he would say, here is humanity. I love humanity. My desire for humanity is to be friends with them and to have them be my sons and daughters. Those are Jesus's words. So God would look and say, I want to be with humanity. I want to be friends with them. In fact, I created them for that very reason. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God first created Adam and Eve, the Bible says they were friends. God used to go down and hang out with them every day. He'd walk with them and talk with them. They'd play a little bit of euchre, maybe some Fortnite, something like that. And they, and they just, they hung out all the time. They were friends. And then something happened that altered that relationship. And the Bible says that what happened was sin entered the world, okay? Sin entered the world. Adam and Eve were tempted and they sinned against God. Now, let me give you kind of an easy definition of sin, right? Sin is anything about my life that's not exactly like God. Anything that's not about my life or about my heart that's not exactly like God. The words I say, the motives I have, the thoughts I have, the actions I do, anything about me that is not exactly like God is sin. And the Bible says that all have sinned, all of humanity has sinned, and we fall short of being exactly like God, short of God's glorious standards, okay? So we all struggle with sin. All right, let me prove it to you. Who in here has told a lie? Raise your hand if you've told a lie. All right, if your hand's not up, you're lying, there's your lie. There's your sin, okay? Uh, who in here has ever cheated on something? Raise your hand if you cheated on something, okay? Who in here has thought a lustful thought? Raise your hand. Come on, ladies. Yeah, okay, so we've all thought lustful thoughts, okay? So you just admitted that you've broken three of the Ten Commandments right there, okay? You sinned. Who's been selfish? Who's been jealous? Who's been envious? Who's ever had something fun happen for somebody else and you're jealous it didn't happen to you? That's called coveting. That's a fourth of the Ten Commandments that you've broken, right? We've all sinned. We've all acted in a self-centered way. We've all had a wrong motive. We've all told a lie. We all have done something wrong. We all are sinners, the Bible says, and that separates us from God. Now, 
here's where this gets really, really serious. Sin makes us imperfect. The problem is this, God is perfect. And imperfection and perfection cannot coexist with each other. So if you can imagine a little bit that I had a a perfectly white piece of paper right here, and you gave me a a felt tip pen, and I just, as lightly as I possibly could, I brushed it with that pen and put a mark on it, I would have just made the perfect imperfect. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist, so God cannot coexist with sinful man. Our sin then mandates that there's a separation between us and God. He cannot be with us because of our sin, and that distance is required between you and God because of your sin. Now, at the beginning part of the Bible, the Old Testament, God taught his people to interact with him through something called the temple. And the temple has a bunch of really fascinating parts of it, but one of the most fascinating parts of the temple was this place in the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a place where God's presence would reside. God was here, everybody else was over there, and what separated God from everyone else was this curtain. This curtain was a physical representation of what sin does in our relationship with God, a a barrier between us and God. And God, a loving God, would be looking here and saying, I love you, I created you to know you and interact with you, but you've sinned. I can't do that because imperfection and perfection cannot coexist. So as a physical example, there's a 60-foot tall, four-inch thick wide curtain that separated humanity from the presence of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he altered that relationship to such a degree that the Bible says that curtain actually tore from top to bottom. He ripped it into the physical curtain in the real temple, tore from top to bottom because our relationship with God forever changed. Before the temple, before the curtain tore, God was a mystery to people. What he was like and what he thought and how he loved us and how he interacted with us, it was mysterious. But Christ demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he gave his life for us. Jesus showed us the full extent of his love when he suffered and died on the cross for us. God would look at us and say, there's no other greater way that I could possibly help you understand how much I love you than by giving you my only son. Jesus would look at us and say, hey, just in case you think I was murdered or got caught up in some kind of political issue, I willingly laid my life down and I knew what was going to happen and I took it anyways because I wanted to make a way for you to have your sins forgiven. The curtain ripped. I can see through that. I can see God. I can see his love. I can see God's word. I can see the church and it's not a mystery to me anymore. On this side of the curtain... Sinful man is away from God. On this side of the curtain, loving God is separated from the creation that he loves. And in between, in the middle of the tear, 
is Christ, who says, if you, if you confess with your mouth that I am Lord and you believe that I rose again from the dead, if you ask the forgiveness of your sin, if you lay your life before me and let me define it and me direct it, I can cause you to get to God. My perfection will be loaned to you. It's called the righteousness of Christ. And then Jesus says his words, I'm quoting him. He says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody walks through this tear in the curtain unless you come through me because you need my perfection to do it. You need my righteousness to stand in the presence of this loving God. The Apostle Paul, he, he talks about this too, of course, and he says this in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, he's writing to people who have crossed from this side of the curtain through Christ to this side of the curtain, and he's reminding them what they did and why they needed to do it. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you're spiritually dead, right? You're on this side of the curtain, the death side, the spiritually death side of curtains. You were once, because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. He, Paul looks and says, hey guys, remember we're all sinners. And because we're all sinners, we all lived in what we knew to live in, which was sin. The logic of the devil was our logic. The logic of the devil would sound like this. You only go around once. You ought to get everything out of life that you can. Uh, the logic of the devil will be this. I should be the center of my own world. I should look out for number one. I should do whatever makes me feel good. That's the logic of the devil. And Paul says, you were dead in that. You were, the Bible uses the word trapped. You were trapped in that. That's the way you thought. It's the only thing you'd ever been exposed to because you were on this side of the curtain and God was a mystery to you. And he says, before, before you crossed over, that, that's the way that you thought. And what that did was that caused you to refuse to obey God. We all just admitted that we're sinners. And we all can also admit, sometimes we sin, and maybe you could say, I don't mean to. And I'll give you that. But can we all agree that we've also lied on purpose, cheated on purpose, had lustful thoughts on purpose, been selfish on purpose? And God would say, that's called actually spiritual rebellion. That is this refusal. I know what I should do, but I'm just not going to do it because I am captivated by the way that the evil one would teach me to think and the world around me thinks. Paul goes on, he says, all of us used to live that way, following the passion, desires, and the inclination of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger just as everyone else. Paul says, we all used to live that way. Our passionate desires. I have, I have a, a, a passion. I, I have a desire. I, I, am, I, I, I want to act out sexually, so I'm just going to. I want to I be selfish, so I'm just going to be selfish. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do, so I'm going to make up my own truth. See, that's that. And the natural inclinations of our sinful desires. You never have to teach a kid to be selfish. You have to teach him to share. You never have to teach a person to be mean. You have to teach him to be kind. You never have to tell, teach a person to tell a lie. You have to teach him to tell the truth. Those are the natural inclinations of the way that we were born. 
And Paul says this, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Another way to say that is God's justice. Another place in the Bible says this, the wages of sin is death. Wages are what you earn for what you do. And so the writer says, what you earn with sin is spiritual death. And that spiritual death, that payment for your willful sin requires God's justice. That has to be satisfied because he's perfect and we're not. And his holiness or his perfection has to be dealt with. But God, who is rich in mercy and loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. God, who loves us, who's rich in mercy, who's abundant in love, who's full of grace, he sees this situation and he hates it because he's a loving God separated from the creation that he loves, right? So he doesn't want to live like that. God is not out to get you. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, right? Jesus didn't come to earth to pile on your sin. You all just admitted that you broke four of the Ten Commandments, and we haven't even tried to get the other six in play yet, right? So we condemn ourselves. Jesus doesn't have to do that for us. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save us from our sin. Why? Because it's his nature. He's rich in mercy. He's abundant in love. He's full of grace. And so God gave us this life when he raised Christ from the dead. He gave us the invitation, the step from this side of the curtain to this side of the curtain to receive the forgiveness of our sin, to personally resurrect us spiritually from the dead. He wants to do that for you, and that's what he set out to do at Easter. And then Paul clarifies a little bit. He says this. He says, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. It's not something that you've done. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Paul says, listen, it, this, this process of moving from this side of the curtain to this side of the curtain, that's a gift. It's a gift that only Jesus can give and that he gave. It's not by your works. You don't get from this side of the curtain to this side of the curtain by going to church. Even Grace Church won't get you there, right? You don't cross over through the torn curtain by giving a bunch of money. Even giving a bunch of money to Grace Church won't get you there. You don't get over there by getting your act together. You finally knocked it off. You finally grew up. You finally stopped it. Paul says, it's nothing that you've done. There is no work that you can do. There is no price that you can pay. The only one who can do this for you is Christ himself. And he did it for you. He tore the curtain. He exposed the heart and the mind of God in this brand new way. He extends the invitation. And if I receive the forgiveness of my sin from Christ, he's the way, the truth, the life, only he can get me to the Father, then I can enter into this life that I was created to live, this life that God wants to live with me, this journey that God wants to take with me, 
my salvation, what Jesus calls the abundant life, my life that's defined and directed by God and God alone. See? And that's Easter. That's the deal. And that's what Christ set out to do. And, and the curtain was the, the symbol of him doing it. And through Jesus' death and then all, on, all, uh, uh, later on his resurrection, that we call it the finished work, God did all of that so that you and I can live the way that we actually were created to live with salvation and with security in Christ. Right? Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think it, make, it might make God feel if he went through all of that and I didn't interact with Easter personally? How do you think God would feel if he gave everything he could give his only son? How might Jesus feel if he looks and says, I, I, I showed you the full extent of my love. I can't do more than suffer and die for you and raise again. How do you think it may make God feel if he did all of that and I looked at Easter and I said, that's interesting that there's a holiday like that. It must mean it's close to spring break. That's fascinating that that is your religious tradition. Uh, I, I know I grew up hearing about Easter stuff. I know I knew what you were going to say this today, Jeff, so thanks for reminding me. I'm just going to kind of move on and forget about it. How do you think it may make God feel if he went to these great, great lengths and we live as if Easter never actually happened? It never affects us personally. There's never a personal resurrection. And we just kind of stay and exist on this side of the torn curtain. I'll show you this video. This video will change your life. Um, this is my dog. <laughs> there he is. That's about the height of his intelligence right there. So that, that's Chief, our dog. <clears throat> He's a... He's a 180-pound English Mastiff. He's just a, a mammoth animal. I don't know if he'd bite you or not, but he would uh, drown you with his jaws. He would just goober you to death, maybe, right? That's kind of the way that Chief rolls. And uh, he's a great dog. I love that dog. He and I are best of buddies. And Chief, Chief is just this huge animal. He is incredibly strong. And we have uh, one of those um, electric fences you know, one of those ones that run under the ground about, a, about an eighth of an inch uh, wire that runs underground. And then he's got this collar he puts on and it has these two little probes that, that hit his neck. And what you're supposed to do is put the fence in and then put flags up around it and they kind of learn their boundaries. It's kind of more fun to let them discover it on their own. Uh, so, but, but Chief's kind of been trained on this fence. And what happens is he gets close to the fence and the collar will beep. And if he keeps going, it'll shock him right? And when it shocks him, because I have it like on turbo shock, right? So when it shocks him, he will, that big old animal, he will tuck his tail and he'll hunch his back and he'll drop his ears and he'll run right into his cage. He's scared to death 
of that, of that wire, this big 180-pound dog. By the way, that's what a dog is. If you have one of these little dogs that's just a cat that barks, you know, I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? That's what a man's dog is. If you, if you don't have a dog like that, you should double-check your manhood. So, but anyways, that's a dog. So Chief will run that. That big old 180-pound dog will run it in high because he's scared to death of that, of that collar, right? So we, we have him there, and, and, and he, can, he can come into the garage, and he comes into the house with us, and he can get out in the driveway a little bit. And then he's got about, I don't know, 700 or 1,000 square feet of lawn, maybe, that he, he can go to. And so he'll go out in the lawn, he'll do his business, and then he'll go to sleep for the rest of the day. I don't know what it is exhausting him from going to the bathroom, but for some reason, he just naps the rest of the day after he goes to the bathroom. And that's it, right? And so we have about two acres of property that, that our house sits on, and Chief has about 700 square feet of grass that he can hang out in, and that's his life. His whole life is contained by this little wire that keeps him in check. A little bit of lawn, a little bit of driveway, the garage, and the house. He will do this. He will walk up to where that wire is that's buried, and if a, like another dog walks by on the road, he'll sit right there on that wire, and he'll bark at that other dog, right, and just let him know that he's up here in his little thousand square feet. Now, the FedEx guy will come, and he'll walk right past Chief. He won't go past that line, and he'll just bark at the FedEx guy, and the guy just ignores him and goes to the door and drops it off because Chief is contained by his thousand square feet. A deer, a raccoon, or something will go through the woods, and he'll bark, but he won't go back there because he's contained by this little thousand square feet. Now, this is what Chief doesn't realize. Chief doesn't realize that we haven't had that collar on him for about two years. <laughs> there is nothing to shock him, but he doesn't realize that. He's so conditioned to live in his little space that he doesn't even think about going outside of it because everything that dog knows is contained within that thousand square feet or so, right? You know what's tragic about Easter for so many people? Is that we live our life like our collar's on. We're so conditioned to live in sin that we think it's the only life we can have. We're so conditioned to, to live in broken relationships, we're so used to it, that the thought that God can heal a marriage and change it and make it happy and healthy and sexy is so foreign to us that we'll just kind of live the way it is. We're co so conditioned to think that depth of relationship is sex instead of engagement. That we, yeah, we'll just do that. We'll just have sex. We're so conditioned that that happiness is found in me getting whatever I want, that the idea that there's another path to happiness is completely foreign to us. So even though what I'm doing is not making me happy, I'm just going to keep doing it because it's what I know. We're so conditioned to live by being defined by our past. What I did, my first marriage, how I failed as a parent, my addictions, though that's who I am, that's what I, we're so conditioned to be defined by our past that we don't even realize there's a future out there. 
We live like the collars on. We live like the curtains intact. But it's not. It's been ripped open. And the power of God and the path of God and the life change of God and, and the resurrection that Jesus wants to give you personally is right there, but we're conditioned to stop and never step through the torn curtain. Even though that collar got ripped off of our necks 2,000 years ago, sin was defeated and life is available but we never go and explore it or lock onto it because we're used to living the way that we live. When I want to take Chief for a walk, I'll put a uh, leash on him in the garage and we'll start moving down the driveway. He knows where that wire is. And when we get close to that wire, that dog will stop and he'll dig in. And you try to move a 180-pound dog when it doesn't want to move it, and you got like a fight on your hand. It's hard. I have to go get Heidi. She has to help me, and, right? So it's just difficult. And so you can fight that dog. He will pull and yank. He does not want to go because he's so conditioned to be shocked even though he's not going to be. The only way for me to get him across that line without a fight so that I can be with him and spend time with him and enjoy him, which is the whole reason we have a dog is for me to drop the leash and walk across the line myself. And then I'll turn around and I'll beckon him. His master will beckon him. I call him, his name's Chief, I call him Chefe. And I'll say, I'll say, Chefe, come here. He'll look at me, come here, buddy. He'll look at me, come here. And this is what he'll do every time. He'll tuck his tail, he'll hunch his back, and he'll drop his ears. And this big mammoth animal will start to crawl up to that line. And if I can convince him that I'm not here to harm him, I just want to be with him, he'll come across the line, he'll perk up, I'll grab his leash, and we'll go spend time together. I'll take him on a walk. He usually makes it about 500 yards and then he needs a nap. God tore the veil. And from his side of the veil, he looks back and he says, listen, I want you here. But I'm familiar with sin, but you don't, you're not defined by your past. I want you to be defined by your future. You're not defined by guilt and shame. You're defined by mercy and forgiveness. You're not defined by what you've done. You're defined by what I created you to do. Come here. And the Bible says it's God's kindness that's on display. It's not a mystery. We can see God's love in the offering of his son. We can see Jesus' invitation by his willingness to lay his life down. It's all out there on the open. All the cards are on the table. The only piece that's missing is us remembering that our collars are off and the veil is open for business. It's us crossing over. See? Us going to where we were created to be. Us enjoying the relationship with God that was purchased by His Son. In Easter, 
Jesus altered the way humanity interacts with God. Ripped it in two. It's free. It's a gift. But a gift is only a gift when it's received. So just to know it, or to be told it's out there, doesn't mean anything. To heed the beckoning call of our Master. I think there's a, probably a couple ways to, to, to land this conversation in a personal way for, for us, okay? So I want to talk to two groups of people. So the first group of people I want to talk to is those of us who would look and say, I have crossed through that open veil. I asked Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin. I confess with my mouth, he's Lord. He's not a prophet. He's not a good guy. He's Lord. I believed in my heart through faith that God raised me from the dead. I asked for the forgiveness of my sin, and I placed my life under his authority and direction. I am over here with God where I was created to be. The Bible would say this to you. The Bible would say that once I have become a recipient of a personal resurrection, God raised me from the dead with Christ spiritually. Once I have become a recipient of the resurrection and I've crossed through the open veil, I become a proclaimer of the resurrection. The Bible says that literally my identity changes. Jesus says that. He goes, you know what you are now? You're not your past. The old's gone. The new has come. What you are now is you are light to darkness. I'm the light of the world. Now you're the light of the world because it's me and you. We're living the life that we were called to live. So I want you to live differently. I want you, for instance, to love as you've been loved. I want you to forgive as you've been forgiven. I want you to love people who hate you, not hate people who hate you. I want you to die to yourself the way that I died to myself. I want you to humble yourself the way that I humbled myself and became a a human being. I I want you to do all that. And then you become my ambassadors. You know how it's going to work now that you're over here on this side of the curtain? When you talk, it's going to be as if I myself am making my appeal through you. And if you have received the personal resurrection and crossed over, you now proclaim the resurrection. You are the one, but to tell you what, guys, I want you to always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that's within you. And you are now are the ones who are going to tell people about the resurrection. You're going to live like the collar's off. And your life's going to look differently so much so that whether verbally or just by your example, the, the other people are going to look and say, oh, there's life outside that wire. And that, that's, what, that's how Easter's the land for us. It is good news that is not to be hoarded. We don't take the grace of God in vain. We proclaim the resurrection that was proclaimed to us that we receive, see? And what we're going to do here at Grace, we're, we're going to spend the next six weeks learning to do that. We're, we're going to have a long Easter this year. And we're going to have the next six weeks, that's what this what we do challenge is. It's learning, it's being ready, it's being trained in how to proclaim that good news. And all that that means, how do we live out the radical love that we've been shown? And we're going to learn the verses together, we're going to pray together, we're going to fast together, we're going to go and do together, and we're going to do it as a team, as a church, because we are the proclaimers, because we are the recipients, 
And the only way that everybody else knows about the hope of Jesus, they don't necessarily know the curtain's been torn until we show it to them. And from that side of the curtain, we beckon over and welcome them over to it, okay? So this challenge, I want you to be a part of it. One of the things I did was I, I uh, put this in this, your packet. I got you a little piece of curtain. It's not the real one. I heard the joke. I think it was funny the first time, so don't make it, right? So here it is, a little piece of the curtain. This is in the envelope, and I want you to take this little piece of curtain, and I want you to keep it in your pocket for the next six weeks. It's a little token, and what it's going to do is remind you that when I am at work, I am there as a person on this side of the curtain, on the life side of the curtain. When I'm at school, I'm at school as a person on this side of the curtain. My collar's off. I don't live like I'm in sin anymore. I live like I've been raised again from the dead spiritually. When I'm on the athletic field, I'm not on that athletic field to win that game. I'm on that athletic field to be that light, to be that salt. When I'm in the stands, when I'm in the neighborhood, when I'm at my gym, wherever it is, I am a person who has been resurrected by Jesus. Jesus Christ, and I stand on this side in the presence of God, defined and directed by Him. So you keep your little curtain in your pocket, it'll remind you to do it, and then all of those challenges, it's all to help us get geared up and to do those things, so that the story of Easter becomes our story and the power of the resurrection becomes the power that's at work within us, all right? So I want you to be a part of that. Sign up for it, get the envelope, jump into it come to services and lock into that. We're going to spend the whole month doing that. It's going to be a blast to do it. That's one group of people. The other way that you would land this conversation, there's some of us that are here, or maybe you're watching online, and you would look and say, I never claimed to have walked through that curtain. I, I, I don't know much about Christianity, or maybe you know everything about it. But you would look and say, I, I never asked the forgiveness of my sin. I never placed my life under God's authority and direction. I know a little bit what it is. I understand what you're talking about because I'm a smart person. I've never chosen to walk through there. And I am living with my collar on. I'm defined by earthly things, all the stuff that Paul wrote about. That's my life. And whether you look and say that life is in rebellion to God, which it is, or I'm just stuck in it, I don't know how to get out, I've tried a thousand times, I've done everything that I can do, Jesus would look at you and say, right, that's why I did it, because you can't. I gave my life, because your life, you're, you're, you're imperfect, your life won't work. I overcame sin and death. You you can't overcome sin and death. You're trapped in sin and death. I ripped the curtain. You can't rip the curtain. I did it for you. And I have a gift. I have a gift for you. And if there's never been a time where you have asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, and you've done it yourself, not in the fit of emotion or maybe not Sometimes we do stuff when we're little and our parents just love us and so they have us do those things. But when you think about yourself, in my mind, my decisions, I want to walk through that veil. I want to be where God created me to be. 
If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today. I want you to do that today. And I encourage you to pray. Don't worry about what to say. It doesn't matter. God cares what you mean. He doesn't care what you say. But from your heart to God's heart, see, Jesus, you are Lord. By faith, I'm trusting that. You're not just a parable or a metaphor or a historical figure. You're God. You raise yourself from the dead. And I ask that you forgive me of my sin that I already admitted to. And because you're God, all the claims and the direction and the teaching that you have for my life is what's going to govern my life. And if you've never stepped through the torn curtain, that's the point of Easter. If, if Jesus just came to give you a good life and make you happy and give you everything you wanted, then Easter's overkill. You can think some positive thoughts and make most of that happen. But if he came to resurrect your soul from the dead, then he played out the only path possible for that to occur, right? I'm going to ask the band to come out and give us a little bit of time to think and pray. And then we're going to celebrate some more because of this amazing news that Christ rose again from the dead. But I encourage you to spend a little bit of time with God. Like I said, from your heart to God's heart, wherever you're at, the master is beckoning. He loves you. He's not going to zap you. He would have done it. He wants to be with you. He created you to know you and love you. And I encourage you to walk through the curtain to be with him. On the other side, proclaim the good news, right? And let Easter affect us personally those types of ways. Jesus, we love you. Help us. Thank you for giving your life. Thanks for laying it down. You alone were the only one, the only sinless one who could pay for our sins, the justice of your Father poured out on you, the sins of the world on your shoulders. Thank you that you willingly took that and you made a way. God, that whether we need to receive you as our Savior or be emboldened in our faith or maybe just come home, we've been distant in a way and need to be reminded of all that you are and all that you did. Would you affect us personally right now? Speak to us, and through your kindness, draw us. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.